Living in Argentina back in 2009, there was a common con that taxi drivers would run on their customers. And there were many cons, of course, including one that involved a button placed under the steering wheel that, when pressed, would cause the numbers on the fare meter to leap upward, and they'd click this little button anytime they thought you weren't paying attention. But even more cunning than that trick, which I was warned about early on, was another that I'm fairly certain I got taken in by at least once in the first week I was in Buenos Aires. What would happen is this. You'd take a taxi, and when the final fee was tallied, you'd hand the driver a bill, let's say a 50 or 100 peso note, which at the time was something like 10 and $20 US, respectively. The cab driver would take the note and then shuffle around in his wallet for a moment, before returning the note to you, saying he doesn't have change. You'd then have to come up with some other way to pay, and the whole situation was very uncomfortable. But even more uncomfortable was that the note he handed back to you was most likely not real. Instead of your legit 50 or 100 peso note, you were handed back a counterfeit version of the same. And so it was instant profit for the cabbie, and a big bummer for you, if you then tried to spend that counterfeit note later at the grocery store or at a restaurant. And even bigger was the bummer, in many ways, for the Argentine economy, which became artificially inflated with all this counterfeit cash. This became a real problem for Argentina, but their counterfeit woes were nothing compared to what India has suffered through over the last decade or so. FICNs, or fake Indian currency notes became such an issue in India that in 2014, the Indian government formed FCORD, or the Fake Indian Currency Coordination Center, which was tasked with taking care of the counterfeiting problem that was causing severe damage to their economy, again by artificially inflating it, and inflicting losses on those who received counterfeit bills, which in turn led to a lack of faith in the government and a decrease in the value of actual money in the economy. Even more remarkable than the sheer quantity of fake notes coming into the Indian economy was the quality of these notes, which led experts to conclude that much of the counterfeiting was being conducted by foreign governments, which tied back to intelligence and evidence they had acquired that the money was mainly flowing into the country from Nepal, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, and was often linked to terrorist activities, in some cases to help fund the perpetration of terrorist attacks, like the 2008 attacks in Mumbai, and in some cases as part of a larger, slower plot intended to cause economic terror, weakening the government's influence and the people's faith in their government, and causing citizens to act out of fear and irrationality due to their concerns about a seemingly continuous economic downturn. A 2012 amendment to the Indian Unlawful Activities Prevention Act designated counterfeiting money as a terrorist-linked activity as a result of these connections. And though this amendment added teeth to laws meant to stifle counterfeiting in the country, it didn't prove to be enough to staunch the flow 
of incoming fake bills. In 2016, in a highly controversial move, the Indian government demonetized their 500 and 1,000 rupee notes, meaning they got rid of them, stopped printing them, and took away their status as legal tender. Anyone who had these notes could trade them in for legit tender at banks or deposit them at those banks. And the government announced that they would be releasing new 502,000 rupee notes in the near future, but that the 1,000 would be gone for good. Anyone who failed to turn in these notes within the allotted time would be stuck with valueless pieces of paper. This was not a popular decision. To imagine what this would be like, picture in your own country the most commonly used notes suddenly being demonetized. In the US, that would be the government announcing that maybe 10 and $20 bills were no longer legal tender and would cease to have value very soon. And then imagine that you had to turn in all of your cash in these denominations within a certain period of time or they would cease to have any value. And on top of the time limitation, there was also a limit as to how much cash you could turn in from week to week. From the 8th until the 13th of November, you could turn in 4,000 rupees per person, which is about $62 USD. From the 14th until the 17th of November, you could turn in about 4,500 rupees. On the 18th of November, you could turn in 2,000 rupees per person, about 30 bucks. And all exchange of banknotes was halted completely on November 25th of 2016. The full consequences of this action have yet to be seen. But in the short term, India's economy suffered a loss of somewhere in the neighborhood of 0.5 to 3 full percentage points of their GDP for the year, along with a stock market crash and other related economic stumbles. Now, there were some benefits because the notes they got rid of were the most often counterfeited notes, and so there was a decrease in sex trafficking and drugs and other related illegal activities, and this decrease seems to align with this demonetization effort. But these benefits may disappear, along with the negative consequences potentially disappearing, when the initial shock of the changeover finally wears off. We don't know exactly how long that will be, but it's a fair assumption that things will normalize to at least close to where they were before within some period of time. What I want to talk about today is another type of currency, one that actually becomes more popular when things like the demonetization in India occur. And it's a method of exchange that is making waves and attracts a whole lot of headlines, but it's also very frequently misunderstood by most people. Today, we are going to talk about Bitcoin. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I am Colin Wright. I want to start the discussion today with an article from MarketWatch, which is entitled, Is Bitcoin in a Bubble? This metric suggests there's more room to grow. And a quote from that article, quote, One of the biggest financial stories of 2017 has been the seemingly unstoppable rise of Bitcoin, which has more than tripled this year and seems to make new records by the day. Such a rally 
has inevitably raised questions over whether there is a bubble in the digital currency or in the broader space of cryptocurrencies, which earlier this week topped $100 billion in combined market capitalization. Breaking that milestone was largely due to Bitcoin, BTC, USD, which by itself accounts for nearly half the value of the still nascent sector. However, a new measure of Bitcoin valuation, one based roughly on the price-to-earnings ratio applied to stock valuation, suggests that rally still has room to grow. End quote. There is a lot going on in those two paragraphs that I just read. A lot of information, but a lot of technical terms and industry-specific references as well. And as such, I'm going to take a few minutes to pull that quote apart and talk about some of the pieces before moving on to the larger conversation that I think this topic feeds into. Most currency around the world is tied to a finite resource. Gold, for instance, or in many cases, a bunch of different precious metals and other tangible wealth that is held by a nation. The paper bills and coins that we use are stand-ins for that actual tangible wealth. There are a lot of issues with this type of currency-based exchange system. One issue is that governments control these currencies and therefore can screw with the systems our wealth is based on in many different ways. They can print more money, they can print less, they can do away with currencies when it suits them, as was recently seen in India and also in Venezuela. These systems were also made for the real-world transactional economy, and as a result, they're optimized for that, and they're a little bit clunky when utilized in the online space. To complete an online transaction, everyone involved has to go through a bank or a credit card company, which is a middleman that, one, could have their own motivations to act or not act as intermediaries for some types of transactions for some people, as we've seen with PayPal, for instance, numerous times over the years. I'll link to some examples of people that they've refused to serve and organizations they've refused to serve in the show notes. And two, they take a cut of these transactions, which raises the costs for everyone. And this happens even in cases in which they have arguably little reason to actually be involved. Situations in which the technology exists to connect the money sender to the money receiver without really needing a middleman in between. Bitcoin, on the other hand, is a currency based on cryptography and on what's called the blockchain. Cryptography is the obscuring of information using complex codes. It scrambles the information being sent so that it can't be read by those who do not have the proper key to decode it. And this is what, among many other things, protects your data online. If your password to a given website was just written down on one of their servers in a text file, it would be relatively easy to steal that document and then have your password and perhaps access your profiles on other services as well. If your information, including your passwords, were to be cryptographically scrambled, however, hackers might be able to steal it, but it would then take a whole lot of time to crack the code which would be required to see the actual information. And though no cryptography is perfect, this is a security measure that is reliable enough to be widely relied upon on the internet. The blockchain is a peer-to-peer -peer distributed database of records, and within this database, 
Each record is called a block. This series of blocks is on a chain because it shows how these records change over time, and the blocks are linked together chronologically. It can also show which blocks are currently being changed, which exist outside the main blockchain, and other properties of these blocks, these records, and their relationships to all the other links on that chain. What this means in practice is that you can show, for instance, a history of every single transaction made with a digital currency based on these records as the fundamental unit of exchange. Every single Bitcoin transaction happens in public, commemorated on the blockchain, and every user has a public and private key, the former of which is a bit like an email address that everyone can see and can use to send Bitcoins to each other, and the other is a personal password that, if someone else were to steal it, would allow them to access all the Bitcoins that person owns. So private keys are generally well protected and even kept completely offline, just in case someone should hack a server in which it's stored. But public keys can be seen by everyone, and the transactions that occur between different public keys are available to be viewed by everyone who can see the blockchain. So the blockchain allows transactions to happen in public, while the users making these transactions are still obscured. Cryptography is utilized by this system in the generation of new bitcoins. Most currencies are valuable in part because they are tied to hard, valuable resources like gold, and as such are scarce or limited based on the availability of those resources. But bitcoin's value is partially determined by a scarcity of a hard limit on the number of bitcoins that will ever be available, and the increasing difficulty of generating new bitcoins. The process of what is called mining bitcoins is somewhat complex, but the bare bones explanation is that new coins are available regularly, and bitcoin miners are people who process massively large quantities of cryptographic codes to try to find the right one that will decode a newly available coin. To do this, they sometimes build specialized hardware that can crunch numbers very quickly, and a whole lot of numbers all at once. To give you an idea of how many numbers must be tried to get the right one to decrypt and unlock a single Bitcoin, in March of 2015, the average number of tries required before finding the correct code was 200.5 quintillion. And this number fluctuates over time based on the difficulty. And it generally becomes more difficult with time because more people are becoming more involved and the hardware is becoming more sophisticated. But the idea is to keep this process of decrypting a new Bitcoin just difficult enough so that it takes miners, all of the miners working on decrypting that one new available Bitcoin, about 10 minutes to decrypt each new coin. So if a new flood of Bitcoin miners add their hardware to the crowd that's currently trying to solve the problem, the difficulty will increase. But if the number of miners or the sophistication of their equipment were to suddenly drop for some reason, resulting in fewer or inferior processors tackling the problem and trying new numbers, the difficulty of decrypting subsequent coins would also drop to return it to a difficulty that ensures it takes roughly 10 minutes to solve each new block. This mining system and the transactional system underpinning Bitcoin is kept honest by a decentralized system of nodes 
which is just software that watches what's going on and organizes it and makes sure that everything lines up so that when coins are sent, they arrive where they're supposed to go. And a copy of this node software is stored on the hardware of every person running the Bitcoin software. This software updates itself six times per hour, and the collection of transactions made and the mining successes accomplished are shared with every other instance of Bitcoin on the planet every 10 minutes or so, and are held in limbo in between those six times an hour synchronizations. This ensures that no one games the system, but it also slows down the system a bit in the trade-off. Because there are no banks or other intermediaries in the middle of this process, just the Bitcoin software, there is a lag in the processing, which is a downside, but many find the trade-off to be worthwhile. These nodes and all the other aspects of the Bitcoin system are powered by the processing power generated by the Bitcoin miners as they attempt to solve the cryptographical problems that earn them coins. So it's self-powered by the very same system that is used to generate these finite Bitcoins. The total number of Bitcoins that will ever exist, ever, is just under 21 million. And up to that number, the value derived from mining efforts will be cut in half. Every 210,000 blocks that are added to the chain, which amounts to every four years or so in practice. And at the point when it reaches the hard limit of just under 21 million bitcoins, the system will become a transactional-only system, and the mining aspect of the software will cease to function. At current speeds, this switchover is estimated to arrive somewhere in the neighborhood of the year 2140, so there is still time to get some mileage out of high-yield bitcoin mining equipment if you are keen to make that investment. Now that is a super bare bones, mostly true account of what Bitcoin is. And I say mostly true because a lot of the specifics have been simplified to make them more concise. And if you dig down to the super detailed nitty gritty, the broad strokes of anything can be deceptive. And there's a good chance that I have misstated something here too, because there are a lot of moving parts to this. And I am not a Bitcoin expert. But I will link to more resources in the show notes if you're looking to get involved in Bitcoin mining or just want to learn more about those specifics. Bitcoin is just one of many cryptocurrencies currently available, but it was the first decentralized cryptocurrency, and it came into being back in 2009, so it's a relatively new thing. In the years since then, many Bitcoin clones have emerged a lot of them offering up essentially the same model as Bitcoin, but each one based on a different blockchain. So all the same components and the same rules might exist within these Bitcoin clones, including the nodes that keep everyone honest and the mining and the private and public keys, but they're using a different history of blocks, and therefore it's all operating in a completely different universe from the main Bitcoin record. They don't intermingle with other cryptocurrencies. Some of these other cryptocurrencies are based on completely different operational models and have very little in common with Bitcoin. This space is a bit of a wild west right now, so there are a lot of clever approaches, though few of these other coins have broken into the mainstream in the way that Bitcoin has. But there are other systems that utilize a similar framework, but for things like record keeping, rather than simply using this token system as a 
means of value exchange and only value exchange. Ethereum is probably the best known of this type of blockchain-oriented software at the moment that I'm recording this. And it is primarily, at the moment at least, used to keep track of smart contracts, which allows for the creation of contractual agreements that are maintained and protected via many of the same mechanisms that Bitcoin uses to protect units of value, Bitcoins. So there's bound to be a whole lot more growth in that space in the coming years because the capabilities, the potential of this system are just now being recognized now that there is a base level that seems to work pretty well. People are building all kinds of interesting stuff on top of it. The market capitalization of Bitcoin is, as I record this, just over $46 billion. Market capitalization, or market cap, is the total number of shares available multiplied by the value of each share. It's really simple math, but it gives you an idea of the total value of the company in question, or in this case, the currency, which I should note some people don't consider to be currency, but rather more of a software asset. But either way, the total value of all Bitcoins out there in the world is, right now, as I say these words, 46275681428 dollars USD. That's based on a per Bitcoin price of $2,824.84 and a current circulating supply of 16,381,700 Bitcoins. Ethereum, which I mentioned before, in contrast, has a total market cap of a little over $29 billion, based on a price about one-tenth that of Bitcoins. So around $274 per unit of Ether, which is the main unit or token of value in Ethereum, just as a Bitcoin is the main unit of value for the Bitcoin cryptocurrency. There are far more Ethers in the wild than there are Bitcoins, about 92.3 million Ethers compared to 16.4 million Bitcoins. And the total market cap of all cryptocurrencies right now is hovering around $100 billion. And for comparison, anything above $10 billion in market cap is considered to be a large cap company, meaning, at least in traditional business terms, that this is a long-lasting, reliable business that probably will not be prone to all the fits and starts and uncertainties of other smaller cap businesses. It's a boring, slow-growth investment that will likely be reliable, but won't bring you dramatic returns. And this is obviously not as true with something as novel as cryptocurrencies, which means some of the language being used here in the Market Watch article isn't quite as relevant for investment purposes. But it is still the language used out of habit, because investors watch metrics like this and make judgments based on them. BTCUSD is the stock market-like acronym used to designate the value of Bitcoin in US dollars. The current BTCUSD, as I record this, is $2,838.04, meaning a single Bitcoin is worth that amount. Now, as I spoke that sentence, the value changed to $2,838.33, a change of value upward by 29 cents. It is a small shift, but sometimes these shifts are much larger, especially over the course of a day or a week. Just like any stock listing or stock market index 
like the NASDAQ 100, which shows in essence the healthiness or unhealthiness of the top 100 largest non-financial companies listed on the NASDAQ. This number fluctuates frequently, and people who own stock in the companies in question, or in this case, who have invested in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, tend to panic a bit when it goes down and to feel flushed with happiness when it goes up because that means an asset they hold is growing in value and they are, in a sense, becoming wealthier, at least on paper. On the stock market, stocks can then be sold. So if you bought a stock when it was worth $10 and then you sell it for $100, you've made $90 minus the fees involved. The same is true of Bitcoin. If you bought a Bitcoin back when it was worth $40 and then sold it today, you will have made yourself nearly $3,000 minus transaction fees. Not a bad way to make money if you are willing to take the risk and understand how the transactions work. Price to earnings ratio, often referred to as P&E ratio, refers to the market value per share divided by the earnings per share. This is a unit that doesn't directly apply to cryptocurrencies, but you can hack it a little to make it fit in a somewhat rough fashion using the cryptocurrency's market cap divided by its daily transaction value. But the cryptocurrency investment analyst who devised that particular riff on P&E ratios also notes that there is immense financial value added to a cryptocurrency by the developers who contribute to the code, and this is not taken into account by this hacked P&E ratio. So estimating that value that the developers add is also prudent, and you might accomplish this by dividing the market cap by the number of code repository points, which is a metric that roughly measures how much developer activity there is on that currency. And then finally, a bubble in the context of this article refers to a market bubble, similar to the so-called dot-com bubble that occurred in the U.S. between 1997 and 2001. A market bubble occurs when an asset starts to trade at a price that is far higher than the asset's intrinsic value, which is usually the result of widespread speculation about how much more valuable this asset will be in the future. In the case of the dot-com bubble, tech stocks were trading like crazy, and the valuations these companies were getting, that is the supposed amount the companies were worth, based not on the money they had in the bank or the assets they held or the sales they were making, but on how much they might be able to make in some theoretical future, started to skyrocket. And as a result, almost worthless companies were making tens of millions of dollars from investors, and many companies were massively overvalued and were subsequently crushed under the weight of the returns that were expected by their investors that there was no way they could match. We see similar cycles occur in real estate from time to time and many other markets. And the famous first instance of this harmful economic over-enthusiasm happened in the mid-1630s during the Dutch tulip mania when the price of tulip bulbs exploded, leading some single tulip bulbs to sell for 10 times the annual income of a skilled craftsman. But then the whole market collapsed and everyone realized that, hey, these are just flower bulbs. What the hell were we thinking? 
The term bubble applies to Bitcoin in that many people are wondering if the surge in perceived value of this cryptocurrency is just that, a perception. This article posits that there's still room to grow, and there's probably not a bubble quite yet. But it's worth noting that Bitcoin's entire history from day one was littered with ups and downs and with articles purporting that there was a bubble. And there was even a period during which the value of Bitcoins just collapsed after a whole lot of growth, leading some to think that the end was finally nigh, but it began to increase again shortly thereafter, and has continued to do so more or less unabated since then, proving those guesses at least for the time to be wrong. It is difficult to say for sure what a bubble in this space would even look like, because cryptocurrencies and the markets for them are still so new and untested. The world of cryptocurrencies is especially fascinating to me because it represents a really pure example of something that I think has always been a bit problematic, but which will become an increasingly grand and grave issue in the coming years for multiple reasons. And specifically, I think this subject of cryptocurrencies nicely encompasses some questions related to openness, availability, and access. By openness, I'm referring to a general transparency in how things are run, how the world works, how information flows. Bitcoin is actually a really good example of openness because every transaction is out there on the blockchain. So you can see exactly what's been sent to whom and when, and even if the people and other entities involved are obscured behind public keys, you can still see everything that's happened within the network from its inception till today and you know exactly how that network operates. There is no black box making computations that you cannot open up and take a look at, which is a lot more than we can say for closed systems, like many social networks which use algorithms that are considered trade secrets, and therefore you cannot be certain what clockwork machinery is at play in determining which information you should be fed on your timeline. By availability, I mean having the option to choose a particular product or take a particular path or indulge in a particular activity. Technological progress as a whole increases overall availability of options. There are things even an impoverished person living in 2017 will have that a billionaire from the 19th century could not have acquired at any price. Likewise, the slow degradation of copyright and patent protections makes available increasingly more media and resources that anyone can access without paying. And I would argue that both the big Hollywood players producing and funding works for big and small screens, and the pirates who steal those things that they produce and put them out on the web for free, are both important players when it comes to different aspects of the modern availability space. Both of these entities make more work available to more people, even if they do so via very different channels using different means and mechanisms, and operating according to different sets of ethics. And by access, I mean the ability to take advantage of the many opportunities that are available to us. Under a capitalistic system, access is generally limited to those who can afford something, be it a product or service, while under an autocratic regime, access to certain things tends to be limited to those who hold positions of governmental or infrastructural influence. Under a theoretical, completely open and equal society, 
everything that is available to anyone would also be accessible by everyone. Open access means more people are able to benefit from a given resource, while limited access might be a privilege that some have and which others do not. The confluence of these three ideas, when presented in suitable quantities, means more of everything for everyone, and in an ideal world, or one type of ideal world, everything would be open, available, and accessible by all. But this, of course, is not an ideal world that we live in. Some information is kept from public view due to its confidentiality or the necessity to keep it private for personal reasons. In order to make money, many producers of things must limit access to their work to incentivize other people to pay them to access their movie or their book or their restaurant. Many systems are not open because should the concealing layer of obscuration be removed, the system itself might suffer, or the people behind the system might find themselves unable to maintain it. Facebook's concealment of their algorithms would fit under this header, as would Disney World's concealment of the machinery that makes Mr. Toad's Wild Ride so magical. If you showed all the clockwork that made that ride operate, then the ride itself would cease to have the same value that it had before, and it would also potentially impugn upon Disney's ability to continue to operate that ride because they may not be able to operate within the capitalistic system that requires they charge for access to it. Those are some relatively mundane examples of what I mean by the presence or lack of openness, availability, and access, but some of the less obvious cases are the ones that are really disconcerting and potentially dangerous if we want to build a better future, and the word better can mean a lot of different things in that sense. Books, for instance, are wonderful resources, and I would even argue it's a good thing that they are quite often available outside of the typical commercial channels. It's nice that I can make money from the books that I write, but I think having them available to more people who might not otherwise be able to afford them via their local library or even on a torrent site or other method of piracy is worth the loss of some of that potential income that I might otherwise earn. That said, a person who cannot read is unlikely to benefit from a book, no matter how available it might technically be to them. I could take to the streets and hand out copies of my books to everyone I see, making it very widely available. But if I hand a copy to a person who cannot read, that book is no more valuable to them than if it was on a shelf in a bookstore and they lacked the money to purchase it. Access, then, can mean very different things depending on the circumstances. A lot of politicians from all political parties use the common lack of distinction in this area to their advantage. Recent statements made by many Republican lawmakers here in the U.S. indicated that health care would be available to all citizens under the new health care bill that they've been proposing and trying to get passed. But what they fail to mention, and the distinction that they very intentionally fail to make, is that availability is not the same thing as access. Yes, health care will technically be available to everyone, they won't tell you that you cannot have it, but if you cannot afford it, you are out of luck. You do not have access to that thing that is technically available. The same way that a book on the shelf at a bookstore is technically available to anyone who wants it, but will only truly be accessible 
to those who can afford it, healthcare in this case, and many other things promoted by many different politicians, are often lauded as being available to all, even if those who are able to access these benefits are a small percentage of the total population. This ties back to Bitcoin and all cryptocurrencies, because we are entering a stage in technological development in which a lot of incredibly valuable tools are there, available for use, but are not accessible to a huge percentage of the global population, even if they are technically available. Might Bitcoin and cryptocurrency be a flash in the pan that disappears in a few years? Yeah, that's possible. Might it also be the next truly big technological development upon which many other fundamental technologies and systems are based? Yes, that's also quite possible. And if that latter case comes to be, we will find ourselves in a world in which those who understand Bitcoin, those who hack together hardware to mine the currency, but also those who understand the culture that has emerged from the cryptocurrency forums and who understand how to watch the market and buy and sell digital currencies accordingly, will have increasingly potent powers that the rest of us lack. They will have access in a world in which most people do not. This same concern applies to many things, to many technologies, but also systems and movements and even ways of thinking. People who can write computer code see a layer of information that overlays the real world that those who cannot code completely miss out on. On that layer is an immense amount of valuable information, and it's all there, just sitting there, waiting to be seen, available to all, but those who cannot code cannot access it. They look right past it. My background is as a designer, and I often think about these types of things in terms of design as a result. And there's a joke in the design world that if you really hate someone, you should teach them about typography. This is a field that's obscure enough that most people don't know what to look for and wouldn't know good typography from bad typography to save their lives. And yet typography is everywhere you look. It would be difficult to go a full day without being exposed to it. So the hidden messages of typography are only visible to those who have the requisite knowledge. And as a result, if you learn to see those things, you also learn to see all the horrible typography in the world hence it being a bit of a curse to have that knowledge and then bestow it upon others. Now, unfortunately, for me at least, typography is unlikely to be a body of knowledge that changes the entire world over the course of the next decade. Writing code for computers, understanding cryptocurrency, and fields of study like robotics and artificial intelligence and virtual and augmented reality development could actually do so, could actually change the world in some pretty fundamental ways. These technologies have the potential to become so fundamental that anyone lacking a basic level of knowledge about them will not just be missing out on a bonus layer of information that is cast over the world, but will be handicapped in their operation on the basic level of everyday society upon which most people live. To understand what that might look like, Think about someone you know who just doesn't understand computers and smartphones at all. Maybe they touch type with one finger on each hand, plodding along through the simplest of documents. Maybe they struggle to answer their phone when it rings, don't understand the internet well enough to access their email, much less participate in a discussion on social media or pay for a service with an app. 
The way these people struggle through what the world has turned into, namely a world in which the internet intertwines with the physical world in so many ways that it's often difficult to pull the two apart and look at them separately, that's what each and every one of us could become in a very short period of time. If the blockchain becomes fundamental to the way we pay each other and make contracts and connect our devices to other devices and send messages and protect our data, then those who do not get the blockchain on at least some basic level will be left out of that revolution, much like that person you know who still struggles to turn on their computer each day, the way that they're being left out of the current information media and communication revolution that the rest of us are benefiting from. Many of these things we learn how to do start out as superpowers. My ability to design and build and publish a website, for instance, is still a bit of a superpower in that the majority of people still wouldn't be able to do that very easily. But these superpowers over time become common, normal, the default. This website building power of mine was far more impressive 10 years ago. And in 10 more years, it probably won't even be worth mentioning. The tools we have available to perform this task are making the process of website building easier, but the level of knowledge most people have about the web is also becoming more sophisticated. What's more, building websites isn't even 100% necessary for someone wanting to have a presence on the internet these days due to the prevalence of social media and other platforms. This is a power, then, that is becoming very ordinary. Which, frankly, is a good thing. When we make remarkable things normal, that generally means the overall ability of people and the level of availability and access we enjoy is increasing. This is why someone without much money today is in many ways better off than someone with gobs of money living 100 years ago. We all have so much more at our fingertips, and we take everyday miracles for granted to the point that we barely even notice them. Now that's not great for our sense of perspective. But if you stop to take a look around at the wonders that we so casually make use of every day, and especially if you put those things into the context of recent history, it is pretty damn cool. Humans are neat. This process of growth for everyone is short-circuited, however, when roadblocks pop up that prevent more people from participating in and benefiting from new developments, which keeps those developments from becoming normal like everything else eventually does. Look at the banking and money market world if you want a good example of what a complex system looks like when it fails to bring more people into the fold and instead becomes more obtuse and obscured, over time reducing its level of openness, availability, and access. Yes, banks are technically available to most citizens in most free countries, but many impoverished people have trouble getting even a checking account, much less a substantial and contractually fair loan. And as a result, these people pay higher fees for most things than their middle-class peers and may completely lack the ability to access the same lines of credit that wealthier people are able to tap into. Further, the higher echelons of the banking system are concealed behind layers of complexity, meaning that anyone with the cash, with any amount of cash, can technically utilize the stock market and tech industry IPOs and the bond system and tax loopholes and so on but they probably won't know enough to make full use of these systems. Meaning those who are in the know, those with the right specific knowledge about the right obscure topics, 
have a massive and fundamental advantage over those who do not within this system, a system that has tendrils connecting it to a huge swath of all the systems that make up the modern world. This type of advantage could emerge from any sufficiently complex and important system, including things like, for instance, cryptocurrencies. Bankers and other people who are eyeballs deep in various facets of the global money markets control many aspects of society because of the influence and power they have gained from their knowledge and their resultant application of it. That access that they have as a result of that knowledge or their position, then, grants them increasingly more access. Politicians, too, understand the obscurities of their system, and by making use of that knowledge, they're able to bypass many of the limitations that the rest of us experience. I do not think most of us would put auto mechanics in the same category as those other two professions, but in a theoretical world in which cars became a fundamental necessity and the art of fixing those cars underpinned how society operated, which in turn influenced the general well-being of most people, in that type of world, the auto mechanic would become as powerful as a successful Goldman Sachs banker is today. The same could be said of any trade should their body of knowledge become the right kind of valuable to the right people at the right time. Now, I bring all this up not to pick on any particular profession or field of inquiry, but rather because it's a valuable thing to keep in mind when we think about information and how it is shared and how we take new information in. If we don't know what we're looking at or understand the context of what we're learning, All the information in the world will not be of much value to us. It'll be a book sitting on a shelf, unread because we do not know how to read it. You could be shown a snippet of code and not know if it is the crypto key for a multi-million dollar fortune or a piece of malware that'll mess up your computer. If you lack the ability to read code, you lack the ability to parse knowledge that would allow you to know the difference. You could see the formula for a cancer cure or a neurotoxin and not know which it is, because you do not understand enough about chemistry and biology to grok what you're looking at. A lack of knowledge makes us gullible, at least within a narrow field of inquiry. I know brilliant people who are immensely knowledgeable about their chosen field, but who are incredibly ignorant when it comes to some other aspect of life. A brilliant doctor who has trouble interacting with other human beings, a brilliant web developer who knows nothing about politics or society. The result of this is that we can be tricked and led around by those who know more than us in these fields in which we're so ignorant. And what's worse, because of the Dunning-Kruger effect, which posits that those who know little about something often don't know enough to realize how little they know, which gives them an outsized sense of their own knowledge, these brilliant people tend to think they're brilliant in all things, when in reality, they may be a great doctor but they shouldn't be telling anyone else how to build healthy relationships. They may be an amazing builder of websites, but their opinions on politics are beyond questionable. They may know how to fix cars, but that doesn't mean you'd want them debugging your computer. This ignorance is a natural byproduct of a highly specialized society, but it's often weaponized by those who wish to manipulate us for their own ends. Anyone, be they a politician, a news network, a medical expert, who encourages you to look away, to be ignorant, to ignore all information that doesn't come directly from them, is probably trying to take advantage of you. 
history is riddled with instances of this manipulation model, from cults to political parties to popular diet movements. A good rule of thumb to keep in mind is that if someone is trying to keep you from checking other sources and demands that you trust them and only them, they think you are a fool and they are trying to play you. Now that said, it's not reasonable to ask everyone to be an expert about everything. But it does seem prudent that we have access to widely available systems or resources that could help us demystify, de-obscure, and make more open the world of knowledge beyond our specialties, and which would allow us to make better use of these systems and resources that are already available. This might mean having digital tutors that could take a person from knowing nothing about computers to being able to code their own websites, and making that tutor available in some fashion to even the poorest among us, and accessible to even those who don't know how to turn on their computer in the first place. This might mean ensuring that schools and other educational institutions imbue all students with a desire to learn alongside an ability to learn, and both of those alongside the resources they need to find answers to questions when they have them, and assistance even in coming up with questions that they haven't thought to ask yet. There are many schools and educators that are already attempting this, of course, but their efforts, in many countries at least, are so inextricably tied to other metrics, other ways of gauging success, that those who wish to teach are generally hindered by the desires of these other entities to demonstrate a type of learning that looks good on paper, but which doesn't necessarily prepare students for the situation I've just outlined. And accomplishing this might mean restructuring society so that our specialties are not so heavily weighted, with vast wealth being rewarded to those with the right knowledge at the right time, and in fields that can be easily obscured, and barely enough resources being granted to those who provide a great deal of value, but perhaps to a narrow subset of society, or in a different, less visible, more open way. I have no idea what this would actually look like and if it would even be possible to achieve without eliminating the financial incentives that capitalistic systems provide as a motive power to generate new innovation and value societally. That financial incentive drives more people to those highly rewarded fields and when the highly rewarded fields are fields that actually produce a great deal of value, that is a great incentive to have. But I think that the modern version of this system, unfortunately, allocates those rewards to fields that are not necessarily generating the right type of value. But I do think that there is potential to move some of those rewards away from fields in which they are currently quite high because of entrenchment and powerful people obscuring their processes and limiting access, not because they're producing real value. We could reallocate some of those rewards to those whose actions actually do provide a massive amount of value for the world. I personally would not mind seeing more millionaire cancer research scientists and fewer millionaire bankers, but I guess I am biased in that regard. I am not a millionaire banker. Becoming less ignorant, even if not expert about as many topics as possible, helps us filter signal from noise. It helps us understand possibilities, even if we may not know how to make those possibilities manifest personally. Understanding the fundamentals of cryptocurrency may help you parse nonsensical information from legitimate news about Bitcoin, and as a result, you can participate in the conversation and make choices that are informed by those fundamentals, even if you, yourself, 
will not be writing your own cryptocurrency software anytime soon, or even investing in Bitcoin yourself. You will, however, be substantially less gullible about the topic because of what you know. There are a lot of interests that conspire to keep us ignorant. Not completely and about everything in most cases, but ignorant about something, some facet of life. In many cases, this desire blends well with the general rule of specialization. Why do you even want to know about our algorithms, Facebook might ask? Doesn't that just ruin the magic? Doesn't that deplete the value of what we're doing here to some degree? You do your thing, I'll do my thing. And in some cases, this may actually be true. The time we spend understanding the algorithms behind what we see on our Facebook timeline could be spent, instead, learning how to up our auto-repair game, or learning how to build a website, or learning about typography. Every bit of knowledge pursued comes with an infinite number of opportunity costs. The cost is every other thing you could be learning about instead. Having a depth of knowledge about something is important. It allows us to grasp some narrow part of the world in a very deep way. And in most cases, it allows us to more intimately know and understand that part of the world as well. And that's a good thing. It's an important perspective to be privy to. But equally vital, I would argue, is having a broad understanding of many other things. This helps prop up the tall tower of knowledge that we are building about one or just a few things, and serves as the base of that pyramid. No piece of knowledge exists in isolation. So knowing everything there is to know about cryptocurrency would be great, but some of what you learn will make very little sense without an accompanying familiarity with the fields of cryptography, computer coding, currency markets, computer hardware, and a dozen other fields that are integrally intertwined with that main point of focus. Now, we all have just a finite amount of time and energy to spend on acquiring knowledge. And again, there are a lot of forces out there that conspire to keep us relegated to our niches and to keep us avoiding theirs, not nudging into their territory. And on top of that, there's no simple solution to the problem of the missing leg on our tripod of openness, availability, and access. Many of our fundamental systems of governance and economics are predicated on limiting at least one of these at any given moment. So to truly solve this problem, if it is indeed solvable, we would likely have to overhaul one or both of these infrastructural components, government or economics, either of which would be quite the undertaking, to say the least. In the meantime, we can help ease the problem by recognizing situations and systems that are dependent on an imbalance of knowledge to function, and by regularly asking ourselves this question, how might I counter the handicaps I have as a result of my lack of knowledge about this subject? Further, it helps to forecast next steps and ask yourself which new technologies, new systems, new movements, new ways of thinking might have the potential to shape something big, or even something small but influential. Who will benefit most from automation, from new communication channels, from asymmetrical military techniques, from the degradation of norms and politics, from digital currencies, from always-on cameras and microphones, from commercial tools that remove the middleman from online transactions? Just like... A book on the shelf requires us to be literate if we hope to make use of the potentially valuable information it contains. Being information literate 
knowing things is necessary if we hope to make sense of all the potentially valuable knowledge and resources that we have continuously at our fingertips today. The book that I want to recommend this week is one that I picked up on kind of a whim because I realized I didn't know very much about the subject. It's called Teeth, and the subtitle is The Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. And this is a nonfiction book by Mary Otto. It is a book that brought to light for me a lot of things that had kind of been rippling underneath the surface, things I'd noticed that in certain societies I'd traveled to, and even now here in Kansas, where I'm living at the moment, the stratification of different economic classes. There's a lot of visual designations of that, things that indicate which economic class you are in. And in a lot of cases, teeth are one of the most obvious indications of somebody who has grown up or currently in a very low economic class. And those class sizes, at what level you're in those different classes, change depending on where you're at. But there's a really interesting story to be told on how this impacts people's lives, not just in terms of the social stigma around what people's teeth look like, but also pain and what a lifetime of consistent, always-on pain in your mouth and jaw can do to a person and their prospects, and what the ability or lack of ability to eat certain things can mean for the same. And the reason that dental care and oral health has been separated, in the United States in particular, from every other type of medical care, the history of that, and how it became so political in recent history. It's a very educational book. It's really good. It's something that might make the squeamish among us a little bit uncomfortable because it does at times describe some pretty horrible tooth-related situations that people have found themselves in. It's not something that's going out of its way to be horrifying, but there were moments while reading it that I clenched up a little bit just thinking about the situations being described. But it is worth it either way, I think. It's a really well-written book. It's very educational. And that book is Teeth by Mary Otto, O-T-T-O. You can find out more about me and the work that I do, including the books that I have written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at xllifestyle.com, and you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can also feel free to reach out to me on pretty much every social network. At Colin is my name. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I will talk to you again next week. Thank you.